0: This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former US intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Nicholas Reynolds. He first got a PhD from Oxford, and after that joined the US Marine Corps. He had five years of active duty. Then he joined the CIA where he was a case officer, worked as a historian in the CIA museum, and also worked at the Center for Studies and Intelligence where, among other things, he actually did my oral history. He's also taught at the U.S. Naval War College, Johns Hopkins University, and others. And he has a couple of other books out, one about Hemingway and another uh, about the U.S. Marine Corps in um, Iraq. But for today's conversation, he has a brand new book that just came out in September called Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence. Nick? Nick? Welcome to AFIO Now.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Nick, I have just finished reading your book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think for those who um, really enjoy World War II history, particularly the history of intelligence in World War II, it's going to become a basic resource for all of us. Um, How did you get started on this project?
1: Uh, Well, once again, thanks for being here and thanks for the uh, kind words about my book. And, and my career, which sounds better in retrospect than, than it was on, the, on on some days. Um, so uh, let me see if I can sum it up. First of all, I'm, a, I'm sort of a child of World War II, even though I was born after the war. My parents had participated in the war, nothing terribly dramatic, but it was a formative experience for both of them. And it was the sort of thing that cropped up at the dinner table, you know, during the war this, or uncle so-and-so, uh, he experienced that. So this sort of lit a fire in me. It, 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 it's, it sparked my curiosity. And, and then as I started going to college, I seemed to naturally gravitate towards studying history. So, um, and, it, and, and surprise, uh, my favorite period was World War II. I wrote a senior thesis as an undergraduate on World War II uh, on the German resistance to Hitler that subsequently became my first book. Uh, as we go along, uh, as, as my career progressed, I, as you said, I wound up working at CIA. And uh, so at the end of my career, it seemed to be the most natural thing in the world to do both intelligence and World War II.
0: Nick, um, in the foreword of your book, you call this book a crossover. Could you explain to our audience
1: what you mean by that? So crossover is, a, is an unusual word, and uh, I, it, it, it's it's good to explain it further. So usually crossover is, uh, the idea is that you have a, a country and Western singer who goes in and uh, sings an opera. Uh, so it, this is a crossover in, in one sense. I'm a person who specialized in human intelligence in the business of espionage. And here I am writing about different kinds of intelligence to include counterintelligence practiced by the FBI and especially code breaking practiced by the the predecessors of NSA. So in that sense, it's a crossover book. It's also a crossover book in the sense that I try and look at all of the uh, various disciplines and see how they interacted with each other and how they influenced each other during World War II. So if you take, if you just look at one by itself, you get, you, you can get a slightly distorted or, or perhaps less accurate view of the world, of the war. If you look at them all together, then you, you see what the, what the whole building looked like and not just one room in the building.
0: Nick, it was obvious uh, from reading the book that you did an awful lot of research. What kind of difficulties did you experience in uh, acquiring documentation, particularly original source material?
1: So, uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, The great thing about World War II is that uh, I think with uh, with the exception of uh, maybe one or two percent, almost everything is declassified and available in the archives. Um, before the pandemic, I had made regular trips to the archives. I had already started work on this book. Uh, during the pandemic, I had to rely on the generosity of archivists and librarians to put uh, original documents online. Uh, the the abs- absolute hands-down hero here is uh, <clears throat> the FDR Library in Hyde Park, New York, which has digitized over 800,000 pages of the Roosevelt administration's records, including its records uh, on intelligence. Uh, Another uh, hero of mine in this respect is the uh, library at uh, the NSA museum, which is outside the fence. And uh, the librarian there has digitized a number of documents known as uh, Special Research Histories (SRHs) uh, and made them available in dropboxes. Before Rob did this, you used to have to go to National Archives and order the paper copies and page through them one by one. Uh, when you have them in digital form, you can have basically your own library of sources, and you can go back to them and see: Well, did I get the did I get the wording right on that? And you know, it, it did the Did I cite the right page? Uh, That sort of thing. CIA as well has in a FOIA reading room has a number of OSS documents, World War II documents. The same is true of the FBI, which has a wonderful history of uh, its work in World War II in a project known as the Special Intelligence Service, uh, which was kind of a rival to uh, OSS uh, Office of Strategic Services. The predecessor in many ways to CIA. Nick,
0: during the volumes of research that you conducted for this book, what were some of the surprises
1: that you came across? As I say, when you look at the whole house rather than just a room in the house, you see things that you, you wouldn't otherwise have seen. One thing that emerged clearly was that the decision makers in World War II, uh, so General Marshall, Admiral King, uh, General Eisenhower, were spoiled in by excellent signals intelligence and that comes from the successes of the British code breaking system which basically tackled the Enigma machine and the the codes that were generated by it and the U.S. code breaking um, army and navy code breaking which started out by breaking the Japanese diplomatic code before the war and so there's this absolutely top-notch uh, stream of information coming into the U.S. government, and uh, so it, you you could forgive the decision makers if they tend to assume that this is sort of the the this is this is the norm, uh, and and uh, uh, they uh, they absolutely love what they're getting, and they will go to uh, almost any length to preserve it uh, and to protect it. So uh, when you look at that, and then you look at their attitude towards OSS, it's like the difference between a child who who is the basketball, he's the captain of the basketball team, uh, he's led it to a, a, a championship, and then you've got the up-and-coming uh, young athlete who shows promise but does not perform at the same level. So that's one thing you see. And the uh, another thing you see is that at the beginning, so the beginning of the war, we have certain code-breaking successes that I just mentioned, uh, uh, like the one against the Japanese code. But what the decision maker is getting is basically a raw, decoded, translated transcript of the message. So he sees what the Japanese President Roosevelt sees, what the Japanese ambassador is seeing, and it it might say something like, "Okay, it's time to." To close the branch of the uh, Japanese National Bank in New York, uh, we need you to su- shut down the consulate in Chicago. Whatever, and and so he, the decision makers handed this bit of information. Uh, he's he he's allowed to read it, and then the, the courier takes it back, and, and then the next day brings another snippet of information. And what uh, what the army realized. And implemented under uh, Secretary Stimson, who's sort of the grand old man of American foreign policy or, or uh, security policy at this point. Uh, McCloy, his assistant, and a man named Alfred T. McCormick. They go, wait, wait a minute. Um, you need to provide context. You need to provide a uh, a finished report that tells the president, uh, wait, this is a departure from uh, what they were doing a week ago, or. Um, this is totally in line with something they've been doing for months and uh, so it wasn't it wasn't quite the same as broader analysis but it put things in context uh it it it, uh it was a great improvement over just getting a raw transcript and being able to look at it for five minutes because you could you could see the bigger picture uh in this product that was produced starting uh, mid-1942 and that the hero the heroes are uh, Wall Street lawyers who are often forgotten. Um, yes, Donovan was a Wall Street lawyer, uh, but here's a here's a group of Wall Street lawyers in the Pentagon who are doing signals intelligence, and they were almost all from one firm, Covas, Wayne and Moore, uh, which happened to be McCloy's firm, and uh, and and also the firm of the 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 leader they picked uh, to run this, Alfred T. McCormick. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you get these get these guys that they're, it's not who you would think would be a big hero in World War II, right? A Wall Street lawyer who made a lot of money uh, during the Depression. How do you make money during the Depression? You handle bankruptcies. Uh, you protect corporate assets. Uh, and when the war starts, these guys uh, drop what they're doing, especially McCormick, and and head for Washington. Uh, he moves. He, they call him in uh uh, late December 1941, mid January, he's done with New York. He says, "Look, uh, you know, I'll be back when I can," uh, and and he comes to Washington and he works. Uh, he's there at seven in the morning and he works until he feels that the the day's work is done, which could be eight or nine o'clock at night. Uh, he expects his staff to work thirteen out of every fourteen days, so they get one day off every two weeks, and they do this throughout the war. So. Uh, that's one of the surprises is is you you find these unlikely heroes who basically stop their lives and do do everything they can for the war effort. And this is true uh, it, it's it, this is true no matter what their political or um, orientation might have been before the war. so so somebody like somebody like McCormick is not not a, a rabid new dealer. Uh, but uh, they they put their political views on hold uh, for the duration and they they produce wonderful stuff. Nick, uh,
0: among the principles of the book, who among them impressed you the most and who the least?
1: OK, so there's I I, I, to, I I just told a story about one of my one of my heroes in the book, who who was McCormick. And uh, then there's a so I, I need to spend a little time on OSS. Uh, which was a very interesting organization in many ways. It it never matured, um, realized its potential, but it was quite an achievement to go from basically zero in uh, 1941 to something like 13,000 in late 43, early 44. Um, and the the growth was driven by uh, William J. Donovan, and 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 he could be a guy. He could be he could be both. He could be the guy that impressed you the most and that disappointed you the most. Donovan was charming. He had a lot of energy. He was open to new ideas, but he was also his own worst enemy in many ways. He loved to fight when when uh, sometimes it would be better just to uh, just to paper things over or, or to, to be like Roosevelt, uh, who called himself the juggler. So by the, by the beginning of the war, Donovan brings an idea to Washington, uh which is basically a british idea they 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 the british literally write the memos for him here's what here's what you need to say to the president you need five of these four of those uh two of these you need a building you need commun- communications etc cetera, etc cetera. and and you need this this structure you, you need a, a unified structure by the end of the war the idea the the there's um an emerging consensus that a lot of donovan's and oss ideas are good for a post-war reorganization, but Donovan has to go. Washington is just tired of Donovan. Uh, too much drama, too little organization. He was always traveling. His staff uh, nicknamed him Seabiscuit after the uh, thoroughbred who uh, won big in uh, late in the 30s uh, because he's always dashing he was there, hither, thither, and yon. See, that's unfair to Seabiscuit who dash to the finish line um, and donovan seemed to lose uh lose track of what which direction he was moving in so um he's he's actually kind of your hero and your anti-hero at the same time
0: i think our enjoy- audience would enjoy um, one or two vignettes from the book if you can share just briefly uh, sure a couple so, of your favorite stories
1: um there are there's there's a, a great story out in uh Uh, China-Burma-India Theater, which is run by an American general uh, named uh, Joseph Stilwell, whose nickname was Vinegar Joe, which gives you an idea of what his troops thought of him. To be fair to uh, General Stilwell, he had a really tough job uh, to do out there and not a lot to do it with. So um, Donovan approached him early 42 and said, how would you like to have a small detachment of special operations troops from OSS. And Stillwell says, uh, so it's a, this is a brief meeting in Washington. Stillwell's passing through, he's insanely busy. He's going from one appointment to the next. And he says something like, yeah, sure, Bill, that's okay, send them out. And a few months later, this small detachment of OSS men under a, a remarkable leader uh, named Carl Eiffler show up. And uh, Stillwell says, "Who are you? What do you want?" Uh, he couldn't remember that he had made this informal commitment. Uh, and the paperwork following it had been uh, similarly informal. Uh, and um, Stillwell kind of liked Eiffler. They'd known each other before the war in the Army uh, reserve system. and uh, he says, "Okay, well, I'll let you operate in Burma, which wasn't really important that important to him at that point. And and he says, I really don't want to. I, I don't have time to get involved in this. Just just go do what you do, and um, and, you know, and and um, all I want to hear is an occasional boom from the direction of the jungle. And so so uh, Eifler goes ahead and sets up this this system, um, basically a uh, forward operating bases um, that are uh, behind Japanese lines. So think North Burma, not too far from India, where. Uh, uh, Eiffler's main bases, uh, and they they set up these camps, and they use native warriors. They harass the Japanese. They rescue flyers. It's quite a it's it's sort of it's a, something out of T. E. Lawrence or Lord Jim. I mean, it's 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 just a remarkable thing. And they they wear their own uniforms. Uh, one of them, one of uh, uh, Eiffler's main men, uh, leader of one of these forward operating bases, basically wears a, a dress. And a uniform skirt. Uh, and so he, he has a sort of like a kilt, a sort of like a an Asian kilt. And then he's got a a, a a uniform shirt on top of that, so that you can see he's still in the war. And he's got a he's got a beard that makes uh, that that's that's just really full and 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 kind of out of control. And he's having the time of his life. So Eiffler wants to take Donovan to see it, and they fly there. Eiffler, who is semi... he's not a fully licensed pilot. Uh, he's got a, a private pilot's license but he's not really current or thoroughly trained and they go in a, um, a British aircraft that's basically uh, cloth and wires and both of these gentlemen at this point are uh, rather large. And so um, Eifler and Donovan risked their lives to fly a couple hundred miles into Burma, uh, Japanese territory at the time, uh, and visit this camp with uh, the, the the man uh, who was known as Knothead, the guy with the beard and the the. Uh, that gives you some idea of: is he Knothead because he's stubborn? Is he Knothead because he hit his head, uh, or some other reason? Anyway, so they have a wonderful day visiting this camp and uh, then uh, taking off, the plane almost doesn't make it over the trees on this little tiny airstrip, um, but in the end, they make it back. They haven't been shot down by the Japanese. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, colorful story, but may the conservative old, old bureaucrat says, uh, what is Donovan, the head of America's intelligence agency, doing risking his life in this way uh, it would have been a major, major uh, coup for the Japanese and a disaster for us if Donovan had been captured. Uh, he knew far too much, especially uh, ironically, uh, the biggest secret he could have betrayed would have been code breaking, uh, something that he wasn't really involved in, but he knew just enough to have ruined everything if if the Japanese or, uh, or had been uh, lucky enough to get it out of him. So, you know, take take your pick. You can you can see here the the, the emerging tensions in American intelligence. Are you gonna be are you are you gonna be swashbuckling and take great risks and dedicate yourself to paramilitary activity, or are you gonna be a little more conservative and focus on, you know, put your put more of your effort into information gathering and processing? So Donovan. Donovan slips back and forth between the two camps, but his heart is really in the paramilitary, uh, on the uh, on the paramilitary side of the equation.
0: That's a great story, Nick. Do you have any advice for other historians who are thinking about taking on similar projects? Ah, uh,
1: so let's see. I'll I'll try not to be flip here, you know. Uh, so one of the so so I guess one uh, a, a threshold. Something to start. Something that that would start my answer off would be World War II is the gift that keeps giving. If you look at the New York Times bestseller lists, unfortunately, this book's not on there, but, but you'll see a couple of other uh, World War II books on there, and and you go like, wow, that war was over. Uh, you know, that was more than seventy five years ago when it ended. Why are we still seeing these stories? Uh, and the 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 reason is I think there there is always one more story and one more one more way to look at an old story. So the a, a book I picked up last week is uh, called The Mosquito Bowl, and it's about what uh, Marines on uh, Guadalcanal do in their spare time, and that is play football uh, and and in a halfway organized way. And it's a an, it's a it turns out to be so violent that the commanders have to stop it. but it, this is the author's way into looking at broader pictures of World War II. You know, finding unusual subjects and unusual ways in. I, I've thought of another way in that I haven't haven't used yet, but so there are there are books about uh, minorities in World War II, uh, and you know you, it's always interesting I, I think it's interesting not just to look at the organizational history. So let's say uh, uh, th- this and that percentage, they established a, a goal of hiring this or that many minorities. I think it's as interesting to look at the world from their point of view. So what was it like to be a woman code breaker in World War II? What was it like to work in OSS? So OSS had a couple, 3,000 women working there. Uh, you know, How does the war look from their point of view? Uh, the same for African Americans. There were African Americans in the Marine Corps. You know, the, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps record on affirmative action has has started to improve in the past decade or two. But historically, I'm afraid the Marine Corps did, did not have a very good record. But even in World War II, there's some there's some bright spots. There's there's one commandant who said he he would prefer not to have uh, African American troops, and there's another commandant who says uh, after their performance in the Pacific, he says, these are not African-American Marines. These are Marines, period, full stop. So uh, the short answer to your question is, I think there's always one more story in World War II, not just interesting, but there are stories that we can learn from. uh, And, you know, we, we enjoy reading about them. And at the end of the day, we're a little richer for it.
0: Well, the book is called Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence. It's a fascinating read, and I'd like to thank uh, Nick Reynolds for bringing it to us today. It's my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having
1: me.